You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Oh, Patrick. So I'm excited because... Um, but, but before you what, jump too far in, I, I did have a question. I did have a question. Yeah. Should I add the red alert klaxon to my soundboard moving forward? Did you enjoy that or should I, mean, I not? It's... It, Maybe for other purposes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can. I mean, we can keep. I did mention in the green room for our last one that you were that you were loading a, a whoopee cushion um, sound effect, and and our guest was a little disappointed that there wasn't a whoopee cushion sound effect. So maybe maybe you need to cast the net a bit wider here. Okay. Um, yeah. So you're excited. I am excited. I'm excited because um, one thing that folks may have noticed in recent episodes is that we've had a couple of guests on who have been part of uh, the Tor Essentials um, branding of books. And what, what Tor is doing now, which I think is kind of cool, is they've gone back to look at uh, novels that have been published in the last 20 or 30 years that um, – have had a really significant impact on writers and on the sort of imaginative landscape of SF, but are not necessarily books that are that are widely known to readers today. And so they've contacted those authors and uh, they've been releasing them again. And so I'm really excited. We had Andrea Hairston before um, who was doing uh, an interview with us and she was just totally wonderful. And we had a chance to, to talk to her about her re-release. Now we have Laura J. Mixum, who's here to talk to us about their re-release release of Up Against It. So welcome, Laura. It's so great to have you. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. So I, I kind of, I may have spoiled some of the process anyway by what I just said there. So sorry if I stepped on your toes, but talk me through what what happens when you, as a writer, having having written Up Against It under a, under a pen name and having written other things since then and sort of continued your work in SF, how did we get to the point that the book has come back? Well, I think when when the book came out, it had a bit of a sort of a sleeper lag. It, it um, really didn't start um, generating any um, buzz until kind of like months after it had come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Patrick is Patrick Nielsen Hayden is my editor at Tor, and um, he and I had always intended to do a trilogy with it. So, um, which I'm still planning to do, but um, uh, I'm trying to think about how to put this. So it just basically um, was something that, and and we used, decided to use a pseudonym because of. Uh, we were sort of rebooting my career. Um, Most of my books came out uh, in the, uh, my first book came out in 1987. It was Astropilots. It was a young adult science fiction novel. And it, uh, then I had uh, three books that came out in throughout the nineties and, and into, you know, the early aughts. Um, And then basically I turned all of my attention to my engineering career and raising kids. So um, it really wasn't until about uh, 2009 that I managed to really get back to up against it. I had um, I had started it uh, really 
um, I found a paragraph, the first paragraph of the book um, with the with the date stamp. And this really shocked me because I didn't remember it having started it this soon, but it was uh, January 1st, 2000. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but like I said, uh, career and all of that business got in, got in the way. So, um, but I had written in bits and pieces, I'd written about a third of the book and it was strictly from one character's viewpoint. It was uh, um, Jane Navio, who was the, um, resource manager on this uh, small asteroid out, you know, uh, 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 Focia 25 uh, in the Focia cluster. Anyway, um, so by the time I finished the book and delivered it, which was about 2009, um, we wanted to try to just sort of rebrand me. And so we used a pseudonym. And um, I think that was part of the reason maybe my readers um, from my earlier books had difficulty finding me. Right. So um, Patrick and I looked at each other and said, we probably shouldn't we have We rebooted you too. Oh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the story of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great that it, it's really wonderful when you have an editor who has the faith in you and your work to want to come back to it and to say like this, this book is so much better than the shot that it got, you know, and yeah. it, you know, the world needs it. Um, yeah. I feel actually really fortunate. I feel like um, Patrick has been a real, um, I mean, does what, you know, in the old days they said, uh, editors do, and I, I really can't speak to other writers' experiences, mm -hmm. but I really do feel like uh, Patrick has really been invested in my career as a writer. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. been that's been really great. So I, I think it's it's important to mention, and, and Tracy, you might know more about this than I do, but this is not this is not the the I want to say old school way of bringing books back into print. Mm -hmm. in secondary markets. You know what I mean? There used to be the secondary market. And so you'd, you'd, you'd have your first run and then you'd get your rights back and then you'd go off and you'd find one of these little publishers that was doing the the reprints and then they would put it out for a little while mm -hmm. and then it would come back to you and then you'd go out and some, this is something different. This is almost like how the, uh, the music companies will digitally remaster from yeah, the, the, the original tracks and put out a whole new, version of the album with a new cover and like just like it's it's a, it's more prestigious in, in my opinion yeah 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 and re reintroducing me uh, to readers because yeah. there had been those gaps those big gaps sure uh, i think it sort of it helps read sort of and particularly because there's really been i think in in recent years a, um, almost a renaissance mm -hmm. of um really uh in the science fiction book world and story world, there's just been this real surge of energy, mm -hmm. um, really great, um, you know, works coming out and uh, more in a renewed interest in science fiction in particular, which I think for a long time, the primary focus was on fantasy, um, which yeah. I also love, but, but don't write. So we've had the conversation as well that uh, fantasy sometimes, it seems to be an easier entry point for some people. Yeah. I was just thinking about that as, as Laura was saying that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I know that, um, I mean, of course I teach science fiction and fantasy literature, so I have, I know, I may have mentioned that before, yeah. Yeah. To the um, but one of the things <laughs> that I've noticed is, um, there's like, there's this assignment I have students do at the beginning of the semester where it's called like, what kind of a geek are you? Where I'm just like, yo kids, tell me what you read. Tell me what you're into. Tell me what your thing is. And it's really interesting to see readers reflect on, their reading habits and how strongly they identify with they, they, they themselves apply certain baggage to certain terms. Um, for example, like you mentioned a moment ago, Patrick, that like uh, fantasy is seen by some people, I think is an easier really? entry point. And for uh, the, the corollary to that is that fantasy is often also seen as like coded language for kids books. Yeah. So the arc that I tend to see with my particular batch of students is they start reading fantasy when they're young they reach whatever age they reach and then they feel like I am a grown big person now. I am 14. No more fantasy for me. Um, and then they, they switch to whatever it is they switch to. Um, but very frequently they don't make the move into science fiction and unless they started there, like if, if the kid didn't start there, they frequently don't ever make the move into science fiction. And a lot of that is because, and this is really telling because I teach at a actual STEM school where they take literally twice as many math and science courses as are needed to get a diploma in the state of Illinois. And still their response is, I'm afraid I won't get it. I'm afraid it's going to be over my head. Yeah. And I'm like, child, do you have any idea how much of the science in these books is just rank bullshit? <laughs> like, there's, there's nothing to get. Or even with the ones where like, yes, they, they're, they are striving towards a certain kind of um, like physics level rigor or, or things like that. It'd be like, it kind of doesn't matter if you understand what's going on with the crash couches at, at the level of mathematics in an expanse novel. Um, because all you need to know is put, put juice in body and sit in couch or become jello. Like that's, that's kind yes, of all it is. Exactly. So much so. In fact, um, I think I'm about to state a very stark opinion, which could get me in trouble, but I think it's uh -oh. a good one. And we love those. It's Go a good ahead. take. It may be, it's a hot take, but maybe Ooh. it's a good take. I hope, uh, is that, uh, and maybe this isn't even controversial. Anyway, um, <laughs> No, you can't sell it back now. You have to, you're committed. Okay, okay, okay. I don't, I, I love um, harder science fiction as well as other kinds of science fiction. Um, and to some extent, I really do strive for some rigor in mine. But I don't believe that just as with any world building, it's a form of world building. And if it's, if it's too prominent and you're sort of forcing your readers to work too hard to try to figure things out in order to really understand what's going on, I don't think you're being fair to the reader. I think mm -hmm. it's bad writing. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of argue with myself in that if a writer can do it entertainingly, um, I'm there for it. And sometimes I, I am willing to work harder um, just because the subject interests me. But I also think <clears throat> that the story really does have to come first. <clears throat> you probably don't want to have to have the re-release of your book packaged with like a slide rule along with it. Exactly. <laughs> Not ideal. Exactly. <laughs> and see, that is that is a barrier for me. When I get into a book and, and I, I took the path that essentially that Tracy's talking about in that, you know, I read a lot of fantasy and then I went right into Star Trek novels which you could argue 
is space fantasy in, in a little way. I mean, they're definitely not hard SF. And I read those for a very long time before, you know, getting into other stuff. And I have had problems with harder science fiction when, when the author does go into the math, does go into the why that this works or, or and, I, and my eyes gloss over and I'm just like done. I can't, I can't anymore. I don't mm-hmm. math. I don't math good. Math not good for me. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Well, I really like math, but I, I don't, I'm not particularly looking for it in my fiction. <laughs> I read fiction for other reasons, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally get it. When I was riffing before and gave the example of like James S.A. Corey and, and gravitations and crash couches and things, that was very intentional because uh, James S.A. Corey is actually the author who was invited to write an introduction to Up Against It for its re-release, which I think is just totally wonderful. So uh, let's let's not bury the lead here. <laughs> what is the book? Like what's happening here? What's the story? You mean up against it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's <laughs> okay. do it. Okay, so basically, up against it is um, set in the asteroid belt. It's uh, basically almost four hundred years from now. It's um, the uh, solar system is settled, but almost all the population is Earth, and uh, to a lesser extent, the Moon and Mars. Um, my characters are all are all belters. Uh, if we use um, uh, Corey's language, Ty and yeah, yeah Ty and Daniel's language, but uh, I call them Stroiders. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story opens um, with uh, a teenager, basically, and his friends. His name is um, Jeff, and uh, they're basically just pulling a prank because they can and because they want to. Um, um, that could get them into trouble um, with putting some uh, nano juice in uh, the sewer system, the water store, kind of like the equivalent of a storm drain, basically. Mm-hmm. And it gets into this fountain and all of these um, uh, skeletons kind of self-assemble uh, miniature ones and start kind of like um, chasing people and just acting up. And so like they're having a good time. Um, and then they head out and, uh, they, a, a major delivery of methane ice is coming and the colony uses, uh, methane for its nanobugs. And the only reason that the outer system can really, that they can have hundreds of thousands of people in these different, um, colonies in the outer system is because they, they have nanotech and the nanotech is um, supported by basically hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, uh, there's this whole um, delivery system that comes from the Kuiper belt where uh, different chunks of methane ice are delivered to different places in the system. And they're kind of um, going here and there and they get this big delivery and Immediately after it touches down, um, there's an act of sabotage by one of the um, the people, uh, the Phocian citizens, who um, destroys the uh, almost destroys half the warehouse um, and the entire shipment. Um, and the thing is that they were getting low on supplies anyway, so suddenly now they only have three weeks of um, 
of energy stores to run the the nano uh, machines that actually keep them all alive. And it turns out that the um, this was an act of sabotage. Um, It wasn't an accident, which they weren't aren't sure of at first. And um, basically, um, the Martians are are trying to make sort of a power move. They're trying to gain access. They're trying to start controlling the the energy lines, right? Just like sort of controlling oil pipelines right. um, from Russia through Ukraine to the Caspian Sea or whatever. You know, they, they want to control um, the energy flows so that they can um, make it harder for... Um, the earth corporations that are really controlling most of the resources in the system to do what they want to do without interference. So, um, but the people of Fosia get caught in the middle. Uh, and although Jeff and his friends are, are definitely main characters, this is multi-viewpoint. Um, the person at the core to me of the story is Jane Navio. She is the resource manager who is responsible for allocating and managing and tracking all of the resources that are needed by the people of Fosia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this happens on her watch. Um, so she's blamed for the disaster and for all the problems that start coming up. <clears throat> but she's also a survivor of a, um, an attack by Mars on another um, asteroid colony, another asteroid nation. Um, And so she has a lot of baggage that she's bringing to it. And to make matters worse, there there is artificial intelligence, but it's all deeply constrained. They have this way of sort of keeping their AIs from getting to having a sense of will, having a sense of purpose that can change other than what humans want them to do. So they suppress true sentience. Mm-hmm. And the original title of the book was actually Feral Sapiens, mm-hmm. um, because basically a feral sapient um, intelligence was spawned in response to the disaster because certain constraints were removed so that the AI could respond more effectively to the original sabotage. And it gets loose in their system, and they have to also try to deal with that. <laughs> so... Hijinks ensue. That is, so I was kind of like keeping count in my head here of like, what are all the SF null boxes that up against it is ticking? And I think the answer is all of them. It, t- it is ticking all of them. We have, we have one of my favorite tropes, which is person with a job that sounds like it would be the most boring thing ever is actually the most imp- suddenly thrust into being like the most important and critical. So basically we have like, yeah, we have like the, the middle management accountancy person who suddenly has to save their world equivalent. Um, We have multi point of view. We've got, we've got space faring and space station life. We have political sabotage. Um, We have characters with baggage. We have AI pressing at the boundaries of its own awareness and existence. Um, We have the, the blowing up of the Canterbury. Yeah. Yeah, the blowing up of the Canterbury, as it were. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, and I guess I, I'm actually kind of glad you mentioned that, Patrick, because I, now that you're 
pitching all the bits and pieces of up against it that I wasn't as aware of as others, it's becoming really clear to me why James S.A. Corey is is the go-to entity. I won't say guy because, you know, we're, we're a poly, poly unified organism there. Um, yeah is our go-to entity for interest. Cause there is a lot of ways I think in which the expanse owes some of its creative. I think, oh, yeah, I think the boys read that yeah. book. Yeah. I think they- <laughs> actually, no, it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> they, they live in, or have lived and kind of sometimes live or whatever in New Mexico as well. And so the SF writer community here is, um, it's densely populated, the Southwest, mm-hmm. Albuquerque and Santa Fe and yeah. And, and, and environs. And, but at the time I was writing it, <clears throat> I was not sort of, uh, we weren't in the same like writing circles or anything at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are, but I just wasn't able to participate. I was, you know, doing a really demanding engineering job. So I was just sort of writing in the cracks and crannies and everything and so by the time I finished it um and I I love the uh um the Expanse series I think it's a terrific series it is yeah and it was fascinating uh, it came out two months after up against it and it was fascinating to me that uh you know we were dealing with a lot of the same that I have a different focus with where I'm right. going with the series but mm-hmm. but in terms of you know, the, the harshness of space and um, the kind of desperate acts that people out of power can make. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Just the incredible, I mean, I think that sense of wonder thing. I think both yes. uh, books, I mean, I'm going to call mine a series, even though nobody else has seen anything yet besides <laughs> the first book, but... Um, that I, it is, there is very much a sort of a sense of wonder, a, a sense of the dangers of what it really would take to have a space-born civilization, yeah. but also just the sheer wonder of it and the sheer possibilities that it that it opens up. So, Laura, you mentioned um, the the kind of shared themes of uh, sense of wonder and the scarcities and difficulties of space and everything, and I can't help between your wonder you know, between your experience as a writer thinking about life in space and and space colonies and space travel and also your experience as an engineer you have to have opinions on some level of multi-billionaires launching themselves into space or or talking about how mars is our next place to be here in the year of our lord 2022 i definitely have thoughts about that i um I mean, the first thing that I always think of is the shape of that rocket. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was really tempted to allude to it, but I'm glad it was you and not me. (laughs) I think, you know, I, I, I mean, I very much get the, the impulse to go to space, right? That's why I write science fiction, you know, um, I, I would love to be able to go to space uh, and explore the universe and stuff. Um, In fact, actually, my current work in progress is very much about that tension between um, kind of like, well, no, so so is up against it. So is Wave in a different way. Um, I I mean, I basically feel we shouldn't have (laughs) multi-billionaires. 
I feel like there should be like there used to be back in the FDR days, you know, um, you 40% can, tax and yeah. It, well, it was actually uh, up around almost 80% tax. Oh, wow. and, and if I'm remembering correctly, and I, this could be complete confabulation, I could be fantasizing about my dream universe, but um, there was some kind of constraint about CEOs not making more than a, either a certain amount or a certain amount times. Like a multiplier. or Right. Uh, yeah. and all of that stuff is not, you know, just crazy fantasy by crazy communist blah blahs. It really has been done in the past and it was has been very effective at reducing um, social inequities. Um, it really, you know, people have just, it's a numbers thing, right? People have no idea how much more a billion dollars is than, you know, even a million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, I think it just becomes, they, they have so much money, they don't even, they can't even spend it all, right? They keep making more and more and more. And meanwhile, you know, we have all of these problems that really need attention and need resources put to them. So, so I definitely, you know, feel strongly that, that space is not, we, we have to reach a point where we have the resources that we can afford to explore space. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and I do think in uh, entre entrepreneurial impulse of, of getting out there and maybe um, once we are able to like, say maybe harvest precious metals heavy metals uh some of the ones that we need for you know to make our civilization run um from asteroids and 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 harnessing that energy and having cheap um uh clean energy for everybody you know then we've got enough energy to get out there and start you know making earth a paradise right um and doing being better able to, I don't know, take care of people's needs and stuff. So there's a tension there. I, I do think it, I, you know, there is, a, I think, a natural impulse that humans have to explore. I do think that's one of the things that uh, science fiction and fantasy readers read for, you know, is we like the idea of just seeing, imagining what, what other worlds could be out there, what, what is the possible. Um, so I, it's not the impulse itself, but I do think that there's just this uh, thing that happens when you get that much money and you're surrounded by people who, for whatever reason, are completely sycophantic or afraid to cross you or whatever, and you really do start thinking the world revolves around you. So I think uh, the Musk's vision of populating Mars is going to be if it really even happens, it's going to be kind of a disaster, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the people yeah. who actually fall for it. No, see, I, I have a I have a slightly different take. Uh, there's there's two things. One, I don't think any of these billionaires have cats because if they did, they know that the universe revolves around the cat. <laughs> uh, number two, I don't have a problem with them going to space. Uh, I just wish they wouldn't come back. Mm, there's that it's like there's it's that. like no one can just accidentally you know hit full burn when they're up there and just send them out a little bit further <laughs> oops and the, only, the other thing is i mean as an environmental engineer you you learn a lot about 
just how complicated and how many weird feedback loops, and this was another really great thing in the Expanse series as well, how hard it is to set up a functioning biosphere and how much in terms of resources it takes to support a population, right? Yeah. That planet, planetary evolution and environmental evolution have done us a lot of favors here on the terrestrial side of things in terms of making a system that can be self-sustaining, provided that you don't, you know, um, aggressively stick a wrench into it over and over again. But once right. you rocket yourself, quite literally rocket yourself outside of that sphere, you don't have that built-in evolved architecture anymore that you, you really are quite literally building it yourself. Yes, yes, in a very hostile environment. So so if, if so my, my, my thing is if, if we built like a, like a halo <laughs> out by the moon and gave Elon Musk a round target to shoot for. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe. I do. I, I, I resonate with a lot of what you were saying there, Laura. Particularly on the level of the the declaration that the future of mankind is the stars. It certainly appeals, I think, to the part of us that has always longed for sort of a gosh wow reality of of an SFNL future. The part of us that was like, God damn it, it's twenty twenty two. I was promised flying cars. Jetpacks, right. jet yeah, yeah, jet all that, and so it appeals to that to that element uh, for many of us who have always sort of marinated in this way of thinking. But in appealing to that, it also is not hiding the fact that it's that buried in that sentiment is this idea of like the future of of humanity as the stars because we're not investing in this place anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like if you, if you, 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 you essentially abdicates its, its financial, ethical, moral responsibilities to deal with the environment where we are. And I think some of the smarter SF that's emerging now, I'm thinking about, for instance, uh, Mary Robinette Cole's, um, the Lady Astronaut of Mars series, you know, really started to contend with this in a very painful way the deeper we got into the series. It's all well and good to say the planet is dying in, in her universe, it's dying in a way that we, do not have the ability to reverse. Like it, we're, it's it's quite literally catastrophic, um, and so we have to get off planet so that there's a chance for humanity to survive. Eventually, they need to contend with the fact that a chance for humanity to survive ain't everybody. Like there, there there are capacity issues that this ecosystem that you described, you know, that we don't have that built-in architecture for. We have to build it all. It's very hostile, like you said it's only going to support X number of humans. And then you start getting into this painful Tom Godwin-esque, the cold equations kind of math of mm -hmm. what does it take to get out there? What are our margins for error? Who gets to go? And that's, right. I think, um, also buried in the same sort of buried sentiment of we're giving up on this place, we're not investing in this place anymore, is the idea of, and only some of you and or your descendants will be the beneficiaries of this choice. Um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, up against it was, in some respects, uh, my response to the cold equations. Um, yeah. uh, I was, in essence, trying to thumb my nose at it because I think that, you know, we all do have an obligation to each other. And in fact, that's very much... Um, 
my uh, protagonist Jay's struggle is, you know, suddenly the lives of 280,000 people are have fallen on her in a crisis where, you know, they may not have enough. Um, and I try to, I, I, I worked really hard to try to create a believable scenario. I mean, there's a lot of strife and tension. There's a, um, a transhumanist um, group uh, on uh, in the main on the main asteroid as part of the community, but they're very kind of isolated from everybody else. They're kind of stigmatized, including Jane herself. She's kind of bigoted a little bit, although you know she struggles with it. She's trying to overcome it, but um, and. Um, and the real kind of, I think, theme of the book is that the the um, Stroiders can't can't um, save themselves unless they all really come together and uh, and find common ground uh, in order to resist the Martian um, uh, assault. And um, but there was something else I was going to say. Oh, uh, and but the another thing is, uh, in my uh, wave series, um, the people who have populated the system are coming out of not a dying world, but actually, um, the Earth has sort of overcome its crunch, right? Its uh, climate slash biodiversity slash uh, resource crunch, and sort of come out the other side. But they and there is sufficient kind of there are sufficient resources for actually um, people to decide they're ready to try to colonize and they get kind of they can get some funding and stuff from governments because I think the earth is sort of trying to keep its population low. So a lot of the the settlement both uh, everywhere on on the moon on Mars and in the belt and elsewhere are just these groups of people who decide they're going to strike out. And they're going to try to establish their own um, place. So uh, it's a little bit of a different um, idea than than a dying world. But but in general, you know, I've been having this a lot of this need sort of. I I started reading science fiction when I was eleven, right? I, um, um, Clifford D. Simex, Ring Around the Sun, and it blew the top of my head off, you know, and um, I was hooked. Um, and I wanted to be that explorer, right? I wanted to be that Elon Musk or whatever, God forbid. Um, <laughs> but um, but I really had to reflect on what are we, what, when we prioritize, you know, that single shot, that little pee out into the dark, right? Um and all of the energy it takes to get out of the Earth's gravity well, and all of the um, immenseness of space. I mean, I can tell myself and you just how immense space is. Um, and I still don't rock it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, how far away everything else really is and how long it would take to get there and how much energy it would take. And I, I have tried to do the math on some of those like generationship things, because I have a book with a generationship. And it's just, it's like, we are so far away from being able to do anything like that. Mm-hmm. 
so to have it as an aspiration is one thing, but to, you know, consider that as the priority when we have so much work, I think, to do on ourselves as a species and to, to really become the kind of, you know, the best version of ourselves as a species, right? Right. Um, I think we really, we owe it to each other um, to figure that out and to prioritize that. So there's a whole other tear I could go off of here, which comes <laughs> from some of like Le Guin's theory and all sorts of things about the tensions between science fiction and fantasy. And I could talk about this like all day, but I think we are probably time for picks of the week. Are we not? Okay. We, we can, we can certainly do picks of the week. <laughs> okay. Picks of the week. So Patrick, how about you? Picks of the week. I struggled with a pick this week, but then I remembered something about our guest. And so uh, I'm going to tie some things together here, potentially. Well, we'll see. We'll see if it ties together. I'm picking Hacks Season 2, which is on HBO Max. The stars Gene Smart. And I always forget the other actress's name. Hannah something, I think. And they are, uh, Gene Smart plays a comedian who is, who is in the vein of a, um, oh, now I'm blanking on her name. Uh, she was, she was the permanent guest host for the Tonight Show, Joan Rivers. Oh, okay. Uh, it's kind of like that, you know, uh, she's older, she had a career and then basically what she, she had a, she had the potential to do a, a, a nighttime talk show and they, they didn't do it because she was a woman similar to Joan Rivers. That's why she didn't get the tonight show and ends up at a residency in a, in Vegas, right. Where she does the same act every night for 20 years or something and people come and, and the whole premise of season one is this, this young comedian comes and shakes things up basically. And the, the character that Gene Smart's playing realizes that, you know, she's, she's been stale and she hasn't, she hasn't changed. She hasn't evolved with the times. And so uh, over the course of season one, a bunch of stuff happens. Season two is all about going on the road again and being a comedian and, and coming up with a new act, uh, talking about herself and, and, and her life and, and, and doing, you know, just basically updating everything that she's ever done. And the reason that I'm tying it a little bit to, to Laura is they make a stop in Sedona. I've been to Sedona. It's been a while. I drove there. Uh, a friend of mine, her mom died. And uh, I drove her to Arizona to pick up all of her mom's stuff, essentially. And we spent a little time in Phoenix and we spent a little time in Sedona. And it blew my mind because a lot of times TV shows will go, oh, we're in Sedona. Huh. Sedona looks a lot like Vancouver. It looks a lot like LA. (laughs) (laughs) I still remember this day. There was some show I was watching. I grew up in Fresno. There was some show and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they're in Fresno and they're showing all these houses. I'm going, that's not Fresno. There's no fucking way that's Fresno. Anyway, (laughs) so not only was it Sedona, it was like where I was in Sedona. I was blown. I was like, oh, my God, I've been in that building. Oh, my God. I know exactly where they are. I hated that (laughs) drive-thru. So... 
Yeah, that kind of tripped me out. Like they walked across the street, and it was the same street I remember walking across. So anyway, uh, that's the connection because I know you're you're in Arizona. Yeah, and uh, Mexico, actually. Oh, I thought you were in Arizona, so I even blew it then. Yeah, I, well, we're on the way to. Sigurd. That's okay. Well, Albuquerque, I, different A. Yeah. So so I'm gonna switch, and I'm gonna go with the KOA in Tucumcari, New Mexico, <laughs> that my aunt and uncle used to own. That I used to go there, and and uh, it was it's a it's not a it's not a destination KOA campground. It's a stopover. You just stop there on your way to Albuquerque, or on your way to um, Austin, right? Mm-hmm. So I do know that area as well. There's also a little place in Albuquerque that they have here now, Little Anita's which does really good New Mexican food. But I still remember folks from Albuquerque coming up and going, oh my God, I hate the Lanitas. They're a chain. <laughs> well, and I, it's, it's really hard to find good New Mexican food outside of New Mexico. So. Of course. Yeah. But hey, I do like the Lanitas. They, they have some good, good stuff. Uh, that was the spiciest food I found when I moved here. Because uh, coming from California and then going to Tennessee where there is no spice whatsoever in anything ever. And then coming to Colorado, I was looking for spicy food and I found it in Little Anita's. So there you go. There's my, there you go. There's my, there's my roundabout. <laughs> yeah. Save we, it and come back. There. We made it. Yeah. It was a good road trip right there. So, Laura, how about your pick? You know, I'm going to have to go with a book or a series, actually, not book. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Murderbot Diaries by <gasps> Martha Wells. Oh my yep. God, <laughs> I just I love them to pieces. Me too. They're um, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like everybody must already know about it, but they're a series. Most they're a series of novellas, and I think there are a couple of short stories as well. Um, future, uh, far into the future. Um, there's uh, the main character is a an augmented human. No, no, they're nope. sec unit, security unit. Yes, yeah, sec unit, sec unit. But they have a name for them. Uh, the class of, but yeah, he's a sec unit. He's a he is essentially um, a cyborg uh, who is both his mind and his and essentially his body have flesh like elements he looks like an, he's an android but he has um he's essentially a machine yeah and he loves to watch space operas yep <laughs> <laughs> and he is you know this it's just this brilliant brilliant um series of stories about you know he's basically a, he's treated as a thing and he he hacks his restraint so that he can watch his shows, right? Um, in between sort of like having to uh, murder people and save his clients and all this stuff. And he's like hired out and put in storage. And I mean, it's just a really fascinating, uh, fascinating series. I think Martha Wells has written some great stuff. If you haven't read Martha Wells, read all her stuff. But uh, the murder bot. Um, diaries is is well worth your time. Yeah. I I recently bought uh, the first. There, there's like a there, you can get a um, on a the bundle bus. a bundle. Yeah. yeah, I bought the bundle uh, for Emily Hash for her birthday. So Giles is Giles Hash is the over at Beyond the Trope podcast. Emily's his wife, 
And so I was, I was doing what you were just doing. I was gushing about Murderbot and and how much I love, and and how much you know Murderbot's like my Grams has to watch the stories, has to have the stories, and then we'll rewatch them over and over and over again. And uh, Murderbot is basically Deirdre. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did. I recently bought those and, and gave those as a, as a birthday present. So I'm, I'm. And on it's board. hard to explain why it is. So good. Yes, it is. <laughs> But they're so good. It's like, oh, God, the humans have a gun. What are we going to do now? This is terrible. (laughs) Never give humans guns. (laughs) I am actually reading the second Murderbot novella literally right now, Artificial Condition. We were Um, wondering why you were so distracted. uh, Yeah, yeah. And... (laughs) have to get back to my yeah i'm on i'm on the other feed doing it um and and actually this is one of the fun things that shows up and it's just it's just a line like you could almost be sort of a throwaway but it really stuck out to me because it kind of uh, gave me a, a different level of appreciation for murderbot processing its media and sort of loving its media as this space to retreat to and this sort of like almost kind of autism spectrum adjacent kind of way. Mm. Um, There's this line where as it is in hiding, uh, transporting itself from point A to point B, won't say a whole lot more about that for spoiler reasons. Um, it, it, It describes itself as taking in media across multiple channels. And so it's simultaneously streaming Sanctuary Moon while it's also listening to some music and it's reading a book and it's also (laughs) watching a documentary. And I thought to myself that that was a particularly cool moment because prior to that point in the first Murderbot uh, book, All Systems Red, we mostly just see Murderbot taking in soaps, like sort of soaps. And so the idea that no, actually Murderbot casts its net very wide and will consume all the medias because it can – um, but always returns to Sanctuary Moon. But all, but Sanctuary Moon is its jam. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's comfort um, food, right? So you you've chosen something <laughs> that is literally uh, on my desk and in my reading this week, and which makes it fortunate that I have a second pick of the week. <laughs> Laura and I are on the same wavelength right now. I've also been reading uh, Mike Mignola's uh, Hellboy comics. Um, and so I'm, I'm in kind of towards the, the back end of volume one omnibus. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Hellboy, the Hellboy comics came out of Dark Horse um, in the early 90s and have been kind of extending on um, for, for the last 15 years or so ever since. And obviously there've been films made of it. And recently um, David Harbour uh, starred in, in sort of a, a reboot that they were doing of Hellboy. Yep. Um, and my previous experience with Hellboy was entirely through film. Uh, but I just sort of knew that because I was really interested in Manola's art and was, was sort of interested in the lore of it that I wanted to get to the comics. So I went to my friendly neighborhood library and, and grabbed off the shelf and I've just been really engrossed ever since. And I think what makes, even if you don't think of yourself as someone who's into horror and I'm generally not, I think the the space where Hellboy has real appeal for me is um, that it, it's almost more than it is a horror comic. It's really sort of like a film noir gumshoe comic, except yeah. your gumshoe, you know, belt sands his horns down and has a giant stone <laughs> hand. Um, so, you know, except for those small details like that, it's and basically, yeah, 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 that one. Um, except for those sorts of small details. 
it it really is it reads like a period piece um with a little bit of like a police procedural element kind of snuck into it as well so if you have not actually read hellboy comics before i highly recommend them nice i've, I'm sure. I've seen the movies but uh, yeah. i hadn't uh, yeah. i haven't read the comics how have you seen the movies are they similar to the uh um the comics the- movie? I mean the, the 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 movies have been you know aesthetically generally fairly faithful um, to and character wise generally fairly faithful. Uh, I haven't seen the David Harbor one, which came out I want to say maybe two years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the critical reviews on that were kind of dicey. I only ever mm-hmm. saw the ones um, with I am blanking on his name, Ron Perlman. Um, but I but I enjoyed those. Those were I mean they were fun summer movies, which is really what they were meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they with the the new one they tried to go R, so mm. they wanted to do an R rated version, and I don't know that that I mean I enjoyed the movie I I can't say how faithful it was to the comics I'm sure Robert can, but mm. I enjoyed it I thought mm. it was good but I didn't I didn't feel like the R rating added anything I agree actually yeah. I uh, I liked the first movie more than the second. Um, mm-hmm. And, but it did have a little bit of that gumshoe element. And I think that's what I really liked about it. I, I'm definitely like you. I, I, I enjoy some horror, but I like it more as kind of like a condiment or a side dish. I mean, or it can be central to it, but I don't like it to be like, um, you like horror stories that are actually character stories, horror stories mm -hmm. that are, are, you know, other things generally don't grab me. Um, I don't like, uh, jump and uh yeah jump scares kind of horror but Mm -hmm. uh, i do like you know suspense horror as long as it's good (laughs) this is this is not by any means my my pick i have picked it a long time ago but there is a show that started on cbs and is now on paramount plus called evil i'm watching it actually oh my god (laughs) that is a good show and in and it lives up to its name Mm -hmm. it really 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 does. does It's, yeah. it's chilling and oh god the name of the uh antagonist i can't yeah he's such I, a good actor yep. he, i mean he, all of them are They're he, and he's so evil in it he really is he's so oh evil in it and and he's kind of like christopher walken in the um what was that series of the fallen angel series uh he's got that same kind of uh god it's my husband Steve is right <laughs> next door. I, I wish I could go ask him. I know we're probably running out of time, but there's uh, Christopher Walken was uh, the Angel Gabriel in this yeah. horror yep. trilogy, and I can't remember the name of the trilogy. Um, oh, I know the one you're talking about, um, Prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, Evil has uh, some of the same vibes yep. as that, um, and in particular, the antagonist has some of that same kind of evil. Yeah. Uh, as as Christopher Walken as Gabriel in um, yeah. Can you so, imagine how how difficult it is to just be a character actor whose entire oeuvre is being unnerving, and how <laughs> difficult it is to like just exist. Like, how yeah. can you be Christopher Walken or Willem Dafoe and like order like a coffee at a at a like. <laughs> These things just don't, I mean, it's, I guess celebrity period is, is an issue, but like, right. Yeah. Like you're just trying to like be a human and folks are like, oh my God, it's Christopher Walken doing the Christopher, like literally the only thing Christopher Walken has done before that wasn't creepy is um, 
let's see that one that one fat boy slim video weapon of choice where he's dancing and the more cowbell bit from saturday night live other than that and everything about him is like get thee behind me i i think the bit of trivia about walken is and and i believe this is still true he has danced in every role he's ever played huh he has danced he's done a little dance it, it can be small but he's done it in every single role no matter what it is. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's, I think that's part okay, of it. That sounds I, like patron homework. Patrons, your homework <laughs> is now to watch I will, all the Christopher will, Walken things. I will throw it out that this, this actor that we're talking about, the antagonist, it, very early in the series, he has, he just, he comes across, he has this, this um, interchange with Kristen and, and, He's basically now working to undo all that she has done as a psychologist working for the DA. She had recommended this kid be not tried as an adult, uh, be tried as a juvenile and get help. Blah, blah, blah. And he's trying to overturn that. And she's like, why are you doing that? You know, he's just a kid. And he looks at her. And I mean, just there's no emotion on his face whatsoever. He looks at her and he says, well, his second jailhouse rape will turn him into a man. And you just get chills. This guy is so fucking evil he uh, uh, the show oh my god Ugh. oh yeah oh yeah and if you've ever known any uh true psychopaths that's really how they yeah. are yeah i mean there's just no difference between you know ordering a burger and you know and sending a kid to prison it you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, or whatever just... yeah exactly anyway Sorry, Tracy. We oh, got no, off no it's fine. Just that bit of a really dark place. And wow. So, all right. We want to make sure that people have the chance to find Laura and all their great stuff. Laura, where where will people look to find you, to find Up Against It and, and all the cool things? Well, Up Against It is in a bookstore near you, or you can order it online at uh, any of the major booksellers. Um, uh, up Against It, um, Laura J. Mixon, and I... Uh, also, I have a presence on Twitter, in which I mostly rant about politics, <laughs> occasionally about other things. Um, I have a website, which is uh, sadly neglected, but occasionally I will post a blog post there at feralsapient.com. Uh, that's feral sapient as like a, a feral dog and sapient as in your favorite AI. It's a fantastic <laughs> garage band name, and you've really got to <laughs> lean into that. <laughs> all right thanks so much for being with us laura thank you both for having me i think you i totally love functional nerds oh we're gonna sound bite that and use it forever (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to the functional nerds podcast because i've always partnered with teachers as co-hosts we have homework for you giles and michelle are kind of cool they have a podcast called Beyond the Functional Nerd. Oh, hold on. Uh, got a memo coming in here. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess they call it Beyond the Trope now. I honestly don't know if that's new or what. They even have a website for it, though. Beyondthetrope.com. Their podcast is weekly, just like ours, and they talk with people just like we do every Tuesday. So if you listen to us and then go listen to them, and that is really, really important. You have to do it in that order. It's kind of like a double feature and double features are cool. 
So check them out over at Beyond the Functional Ner- uh, Sorry, wait, <laughs> sorry, BeyondTheTrope.com. Yeah, that's it. BeyondTheTrope.com. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, or really any of our episodes, there's lots of things you can do to support us and let us know you like these things, okay? A little bit of validation. We love validation. You could go to wherever you listen to our episodes. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, and give us some stars and reviews. Say something nice about us. You could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and toss a couple bucks our way. You could get a supporting or attending membership for Worldcon and nominate us for a Hugo Award in 2023. See, I'm kind of getting ahead of it this time. Uh, It's far too late for 2022, but 2023 is doable. If you need, like if you have questions, just reach out and and ask me how that works. And I I can explain it to you, Todd. You could buy our books. Tracy's got a couple out there. I've got a novel and some novellas out there. Google that shit, people. That would be awesome. You could stop two random strangers in the street and tell them all about us. Like just people you're passing as you're walking. Now, <laughs> if you do that, like uh, make some serious eye contact. Don't, don't blink. Just stare at them right in the eye and tell them to listen to us and why they should. There's probably some stuff I'm forgetting. <laughs> I'm sure Robert will let me know or Todd. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good enough signal. (laughs) I'm so excited.